Hi there, this is episode two of this unique season on allergies. And I'm joined by my co-host, Brianne Hurdle again. Hello, Brianne. Hello, Dr. Lee. How are you? Good, good. And uh, I just wanted to thank uh, Pfizer for sponsoring this season again uh, with their generous uh, support. And, you know, today on today's episode, uh, episode two, we wanted to talk about common, you know, misunderstandings or myths about food allergies and, uh, you know, what, what they are. So um, any questions you have to start off uh, this conversation, Brianne? Oh, when it comes to myths about allergies, um, I think as we sort of touched on in the last um, episode in regards to cleanliness and what we've learned over the years that being cleaner is better, but um, not so much in in recent studies and showing that we need to have certain exposure to bacterium or micro uh, microorganisms and different things. Um, some of the things I used, I was told, I think uh, with allergies was the more exposure you get to that, um, allergen, um, the worse it's going to become. Yeah. So that's a really good one. Um, and you know, it's a very common question I get. So, you know, especially people who are stung by stinging insects who develop uh, anaphylaxis. Uh, symptoms, you know, is the next one mean it's going to be more uh, severe? And the answer um, in short is not necessarily, but we don't know. So in our previous episode, we talked about cofactors. So things that can, you know, lower the threshold of having reaction or make the reaction more severe. Um, so cofactors really determine a lot of the severity, but uh, age and physical health of the patient also determines things. So for example, uh, you know, in, in the case of venoms, for example, um, patients who are older or people who are older who may have already pre-existing cardiovascular disease or other things are more likely to uh, not be able to have their compensatory mechanisms to, you know, counteract the anaphylaxis. And the body does have natural way of fighting anaphylaxis is your adrenal glands can produce uh, adrenaline, which is, you know, essentially epinephrine. And this can counteract some of the allergic re reactions. The other point that you make is that, you know, again, it's the same question, but exposure and would recurrent or repeated exposure cause more severe symptoms. And, you know, again, the short answer is not necessarily, but it's, it's mm -hmm. a very complicated one to answer because, um, it really depends on the route and the amount that you're exposed to as well in a lot of cases. So for example, if uh, you know, you're allergic to, um, let's, say, um, let's say you're allergic to a drug like Advil, very common, and mm -hmm. you, know, you get something that is like Advil given intravenously. So the intravenous uh, non-steroidal, something like you know, Toradol, which is commonly used in ERs, would cause a much bigger reaction if the patient is also cross-sensitized, meaning that they're allergic to similar proteins and, and parts or antigens of that uh, drug. So, um, you know, it is a, a hard question and with uh, the simple answer being not necessarily. <laughs> okay, okay, well, that's a good one. What about for, um, uh, this is sort of more specific, but nursing mothers. I mean, I heard so much, um, different controversial topics or issues about if the mother was allergic to a certain food that, 
they, they had to stay away from that food because they're going to pass it on to their baby through the breast milk. And then the baby could have an allergic reaction. Yeah. So if, if the mother is allergic to that food, uh, they can't necessarily uh, eat that food. Um, but, you know, even if the mother is allergic, uh, generally, you know, in the absence of, you know, really bad eczema or severe eczema, I, I generally tell and advise my patients to introduce that food to the baby in, in, in you know, in another way. So I did this mm -hmm. for my own children as well. And so the current recommendation is that, you know, around the ages of four to six months, as you start introducing your children to age appropriate forms of pretty much every food. Um, so, you know, I made sure to introduce my kids to a bit of peanut, uh, peanut butter, even little tiny bits of shrimp, uh, things like that to just try to get them uh, their bodies to be able to see this food. Um, because again, if it's something that they've seen uh, and continue to see on sort of a, you know, quote unquote, regular basis, they're less likely to think that it's a parasite, uh, which is essentially what an allergy is, is when your body misclassifies something as, as a parasite and has to have some kind of, you know, reaction to it to try to neutralize it from coming into your body. Uh, but unfortunately it has the, uh, you know, detrimental effects of shutting down your cardiovascular respiratory system sometimes. Um, with mm. the mother, I guess, yeah, all proteins that the mother ingests, they're digested, absorbed into the mom, and mm -hmm. they do come out in breast milk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, um, mm -hmm. the little pieces that we talked about of the proteins, like called antigens, they are transferred and medications are transferred. Um, but again, mm -hmm. you know, in reference to your original question, if they're allergic, yeah, they can introduce it, but I recommend introducing it in another way. Right. So I, I guess I, 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 the way I framed that question was sort of um, uh, not the mother, well, the mother ingesting something that they're sensitive to, not necessarily because they wouldn't be eating anything that they're allergic to to pass along. But in re um, my daughter, when she was born, uh, they said she had a milk protein allergy. Oh, OK. Interesting. So I couldn't eat food okay. that had milk protein because she would then get and so, but I learned that there's a big difference between a milk protein allergy versus a lactose allergy or a lactase allergy. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Is there any way to just to debunk some sort of myth around what mom can eat if she's lactating and nursing? If yeah, the so baby has a, milk protein? That's a whole uh, different uh, kettle of fish there with the uh, uh, food protein enteropathies. And this can be from uh, dairy. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we don't see this a lot. So that's a very um, uncommon kind of thing. And, uh, but, you know, proteins in milk induce a very strong reaction and symptoms in, in children who react to some of these uh, proteins. So uh, unfortunately, in that case, you do have to avoid it um, because there will be a cross exposure of those proteins and antigens through uh, um, various forms of milk. And you can't really okay. substitute with another animal most of the time because, uh, you know, evolution, there's a lot of sequence homology in the proteins. So for example, if you, some people try to use uh, goat's milk or another animal's uh, milk, and uh, you often run into the same problem. And, and as you saw, probably from your own daughter, the, the symptoms are quite severe. So uh, you do mm -hmm. have to avoid things. You touched yeah. on um, the lactose intolerance thing too. 
this is very interesting. So some people um, are born uh, unable to process the sugar in, uh, in milk. So that's right. lactase enzyme. So lactose mm -hmm. is the sugar that's in uh, cow's milk and uh, yeah. it's in, uh, you know, a couple other milks as well. But the inability to break down the sugar when ingested, it causes something called uh, osmotic diarrhea. So it causes mm -hmm. flatulence, it causes watery uh, loose stools, and it is pretty immediate after ingestion. Uh, but, you know, and in contrast to food allergy, it won't cause the itchiness, it won't cause the, the rashes or the hives. Mm -hmm. Lactose intolerance. Um, the other thing that's uh, very common in this is that most adults, unless you're Northwestern European descendant, will mm -hmm. become lactose intolerant to some degree in adulthood. So usually it starts in your late teens, early 20s. But by definition, about 95% of the world as an adult will become lactose intolerant to some degree. And it gets worse with age. It's kind of like your body telling you, hey, um, you're an adult now, you don't need milk. And when, when you look at you know, other animals that are mammals out there, there's no mammal in the world no. that drinks milk as an adult. And there's no. you know, certainly no mammal in the world that actively drinks another animal's milk uh, as an adult so yeah exactly and doesn't this prove the theory that uh dairy is sort of not needed for the for human consumption yeah so it's um it's a little bit easier now uh like you know if if, if the gi symptoms bother you with lactose intolerance you can get a lot of lactose-free products because there's a lot of uh, awareness about you can. lactose intolerance uh but yeah you know if you work with a good dietitian or have good dietary knowledge, uh, you can get most of your calcium mm -hmm. and other vitamin needs uh, through other food uh, sources. And, you know, a lot of uh, successful vegans do this all the time. And, um, you know, it, it is a bit of a myth and a lot of marketing. You know, we have a very powerful mm -hmm. milk lobby uh, or dairy lobby, I should say, in, in Canada. Uh, that, uh, you know, dairy is always... Uh, healthy, fresh, and, you know, in a lot of studies it is, I'm not saying it's unhealthy, but, you know, to get the same nutrients, you can get it from a lot of other sources as well. And well, yes, of course we can. Yeah, I know. It's just interesting how you're saying that 95% of people will wind up being lactose intolerant at a certain age. Cause yeah, we're the only mammals on the planet that goes from mother's milk to another mammal's milk. Yeah. And, and you know, there is a medical test you can see for uh, lactose intolerance. And this test is only, will only show if you're like completely or near completely lactose intolerant, which most okay. people don't get to. So most people just get like a partial lactose intolerance, uh, which will mm -hmm. be negative on this test, but they'll certainly experience the symptoms. And the symptoms usually start with uh, things like liquid milk and then yes. progress to things that are, um, you know, slower and more fat content to digest. So, you know, cheeses yeah. and ice creams, yeah. they transit the bowels slower. So your yeah. limited lactase enzyme activity has more time to act on them. So those symptoms come out kind of later as your right. lactose intolerance progresses. Interesting. Um, another myth that I was curious to know what your thoughts were on, uh, and that is alcohol. When you hear people say, oh, I'm allergic to alcohol. Um, isn't it known that to be actually allergic to the alcohol component is pretty difficult versus the histamine coming from say fruit, grapes, distilled wheat? Yeah. So I, I get this consult, uh, at least a few times a week and, you know, it's hard to make a blanket treatment. So there are many types of reactions to alcohol. 
Um, okay. Reacting to the alcohol itself is very hard to do unless you drink a very large quantity. So I mentioned the mast cells, they, you know, you, you would have to drink enough to change your something called osmolality in your blood to have a reaction. Uh, the right. exception to this is one really, really rare condition called uh, mastocytosis or systemic mastocytosis when you have, you know, your body's producing more of these cells than it should. And then you're act to act, react to like a lot of different foods with very minimal uh, stimulation and alcohol is one of them. Um, the other, you know, thing that you got to discern as, as a specialist assessing this is one, is it only occurring with uh, wines versus beer? or you know, versus uh, vodka or something else with pretty much no protein. Um, so the question you ask is what are the symptoms and what is it occurring to? If it is all alcohols, again, you have that mastocytosis theory. Uh, you know, That's, yes, right. Yeah. I've heard of this. Uh-huh. Provided the patients actually um, you know, have all the other constellation of symptoms too, like the hives and you know, sometimes difficulty breathing. The other question um, that you often get as, uh, you know, or the, the symptom that I see is I get predominantly respiratory symptoms and it only occurs with wine. And when you really get yes. down to it, it occurs more with red wine versus white wine. And this really mm-hmm. speaks to something called sulfites or menopause sulfites. Um, it's a common food preservative found in yep. most preserved, uh, you know, fruit kind of things. And this breaks down into something called SO2 uh, once you drink it. So you get immediate, you know, breathing symptoms and asthmatics are much more affected than non-asthmatics. And this, in fact, a lot of non-asthmatics never react to sulfites. So if it's mm-hmm. predominantly respiratory in that timeline of immediate, then you look, think looking at sulfites. Uh, a few patients of mine over the years, uh, uh, turned out they were allergic to barley, uh, which is found in beer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not that common to have a a barley allergy, but I do see it every now and then. And so if they're Mm -hmm. only reacting to beer, that's a possibility as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I used to work in the wine industry as a sommelier years and years and years and years ago. (laughs) And um, I would often just tell people to take an antihistamine before they drank their wine, because that's usually what cleared up um, their symptoms of a red, red flush face and stuffiness and respiratory and headaches. Um, there's large amounts of histamine in grapes. And yeah, so some foods do have more uh, histamine uh, or histaminergic uh, precursors. Um, yeah. The antihistamines will help sometimes with the nasal congestion symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. And because they do, um, there's two effects of alcohol itself. One, it's what's called a peripheral vasodilator, which means it'll, mm-hmm. you know, open up your, uh, you know, blood vessels and the periphery. So like your skin and in your right. nose. Um so people can sometimes complain of immediate nasal congestion or post-nasal drip type symptoms. Um, the other effect of alcohol is, again, if you expose it locally to a high concentration, those allergy cells, mouth cells can go off and you know, contribute to some of the congestion. Um, and some, sometimes people you know, complain of a bit of a swelling in their back of the throat and things like that. And that's mm-hmm. the local exposure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, sulfites were a big one too. Unfortunately, it's naturally occurring from fermentation in um, when you ferment wine, when, like when you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> so it, they're it, always sulfites there are naturally occurring too. But I think yeah. they, the wine industry does add sulfites. Uh, they do. It's a preservative. Yeah. yeah. But you can never, it's like caffeine. It's like decaf coffee. You can never quite get all the caffeine out. You just yeah. can take most of it out. So it's the same with wine. 
So yeah. Brianne, you may know this as a sommelier. Uh, you know, I, I have no training in wine tasting, but uh, I <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a thing called the fining process in wine. And, you know, as an allergist, you kind of have to know a little bit about the fining process. So some of the more expensive wines are actually, um, they run through eggshells um, in this mm -hmm, fine process. And some of them are actually filtered through fish bladders, uh, the wine. Um, so they actually use a fish bladder to filter the wine. So if you have someone who only reacts to certain wines or certain, um, you know, vintages, um, this is a possibility as well. If they have a concomitant egg allergy or a fish allergy, it's something to uh, think about. Again, this kind of, you know, speaks to what we we're talking about offline, you know, how much does your allergist know? These kind of little niche knowledges are, are very important to know. It's really, it's, it, it is, it's very interesting because you talk to people where they say, well, it's just red wine or it's just this type of wine or it's just this varietal. And it also depends on the producer. Like it's really mm -hmm. hard to break it down because everybody is, it's different. Every producer and region is different. And yeah, it's, 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 it's complex. <laughs> can't imagine the things that you have to, uh, or the questions that you get asked. I'm trying to think of other, um, uh, uh, myths about allergies. I know. What about, what about, I heard one time, uh, latex allergies. Now this isn't necessarily a food allergy, but what about bananas? Because yeah, bananas are part of the latex plant. Are they not? I love it. Um, so there is something called a latex uh, cross-sensitized foods. So these are, again, you know, speaks to evolution. Latex, normally, the natural rubber latex comes from the latex tree and plant. So there are foods yes. that share proteins, uh, again, by virtue of evolution. Um, so banana is certainly one of them. Uh, avocado, uh, kiwi is another. And some people mm. have a component of peaches that can cross-react as well. So this um, whole phenomenon we call food pollen allergy syndrome, but latex, um, definitely if you're using the natural rubber latex is a cause of anaphylaxis. So some people will actually react to blowing up a latex balloon or a latex condom. And um, mm -hmm. you know, the interesting thing is the latex industry themselves have kind of reduced the amount of these allergenic proteins in their products. And a lot of the rubber we produce um, is actually not natural anymore. So it's synthetic rubber, which doesn't have yeah, these as well. So uh, you will be less apt to react to them. I'll tell you an interesting case, uh, Brianne, that I saw, and no one could figure this out. So it was one of my proud moments and as, as a specialist doctor. This lady would only react sporadically and only when she ate out and she had no known food allergies. And, you know, so we explored oh. all the, all the food possibilities and, you know, I asked her which restaurant specifically, and it turned out the restaurants that she was going to, the food handlers were wearing natural latex gloves. So the protein was actually transferring onto the food. And so, you know, I just said, you know, just be careful when you go to restaurants and don't go to those ones if they're using those gloves. Interesting. Yeah, no, I knew somebody once that couldn't eat bananas because she had yeah. a latex allergy. Yeah. yeah. And not everyone does. Um, so if you have a latex allergy, doesn't mean guaranteed you're going to have a reaction to the cross reactive uh, foods, but there's a percentage increase risk. Uh, so again, it depends on which exact protein you're allergic to. You know, in Canada, 
I can't figure out which protein they're allergic to and, and any food except for peanut. We don't have access to something called component resolve testing. Um, but yeah, if you're in a large US academic center and you have access to these labs, you can figure out exactly what part you're reacting to to most things. Interesting. And, and, and how does that happen? Um, like other than doing skin testing, I, that's the first step you would take as an aller and like working with allergies is doing a skin a patch test. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a, it's a skin prick test. So a uh, skin prick test involves introducing a little bit of the allergen onto the skin. So you nick the skin, these mast cells sit right um, below. We are making a huge assumption that the allergy antibodies are distributed evenly in the body, but not always they are, but most of the time they are. Um, so we introduce a little bit and the reaction is fairly immediate. So this still remains the best sensitive test, meaning you can rule out an allergy with it. You know, the sensitivity we code about 90%, so it's accurate 90% of the time in ruling out. We have other diagnostics available, uh, but most provincial plans don't actually cover or pay for these. So uh, there's something called the immunocap, which is a blood test. And the blood test will detect the presence of these allergy antibodies specifically. And it's not affected by anything you're on. So, mm -hmm. so sometimes people inadvertently take an allergy pill or an antihistamine. Antihistamines are found in a lot of things, uh, including, you know, cold and flu remedies. Uh, so they can actually make the tests like not accurate. So the blood test kind of circumvents this. Um, but, you know, it can be costly, especially if you don't have medical insurance that covers these extra labs because, you know, it's, uh, it's not covered. Of course, of course. Um, there was something somebody said to me one time, I'm just trying to remember back about another possible myth, but I... I, because this is not my forte, um, but it would be a good question for you is that with food allergies, the, it, there's potential that somebody could outgrow them and you, you do see this, not always, um, based on how, I guess, the immune system develops or it's responding. But then what about drugs? Like I, this person had said, you will always be allergic to a medication. You can't outgrow that. <clears throat> the body will always react. So, so it's there well will be not no tolerance built up. Yeah, it's, it's less well known uh, what happens to people with drug allergies. But one thing that happens is as we all get older, you're more likely to be exposed to more and more drugs just by virtue of yes. you know, the, the ailments that you're faced with. And, um, you know, the so the chance or probability of your body making a mistake to a drug does increase. Um, you know, so it's, it's hard to know because we don't have as much data on this as uh, we do with food allergies. So... Well, I will say one thing, if someone is truly allergic to a drug, there is actually a way to get rid of that allergy um, with something called drug uh, desensitization. So you can actually get rid of oh. an allergy to a drug. Uh, we typically don't do this because it involves, you know, being admitted to the ICU and doing it in a super careful way over like an entire day. Um, but yeah, the body is able to, you know, we, we are able to induce the energy that we spoke about. With foods, we're kind of learning how to do this as well. So this has really exploded in the last five years or so. Um, yeah, so um, we just got disconnected there, but uh, I just wanted to finish up on the, uh, the food allergies and what's happened in the last five years. The paradigm has really changed. So we have um, ways that we figured out on how to desensitize people to foods that they're allergic to. So... You know, this is something that I've started to do a couple of years uh, just before the pandemic as well. So my patients are actually now able to eat all the foods that they were allergic to because we did something called oral immunotherapy. So with repeated uh, safe exposure in increasing in increments, 
you can actually have someone who, for example, is allergic to peanut or other foods. Most of my patients have actually had multiple foods. Uh, they can actually eat those foods um, without having to worry about anaphylaxis. But this, this is not a cure for the allergy, but this is a desensitized state where an accidental ingestion, for example, my peanut patients can eat up to about you know, two to four peanuts or even eight uh, without actually having to worry about anaphylaxis. So um, this is a huge change. And interestingly, this works better for people who are under the age of 17. Um, the immune system is malleable or most malleable um, up to that age, it turns out from a lot of studies. So you can actually change the way it processes and uh, you know it kind of deals with certain proteins. The older you get, it becomes less or more and more difficult to do. So I've, the oldest patient that I've been able to do this for is actually uh, in his mid thirties. So it's definitely possible to do, um, but uh, like everything else in the body, it kind of uh, becomes less and less malleable. The gland or the organ that's critical for this is something called the thymus gland, Bree. So this thing sits, it's an actual organ, sits above the heart. It's huge when you're born. Um, this is where all the immune training uh, of your body's sort of adaptive immune system occurs. So these T cells, they go to this area, they learn what's self, what's uh, enemy, and what, you know, they kind of learn, it's like their school. And every year this organ gets a little bit, little bit, little bit smaller. So by the time you're 65, it's gone. And, you know, um, this is kind of the reason why people who are older are more likely to die of COVID or any infections because the immune system is just not as robust. Your cell counts actually drop off over time. But when you're young, this malleability of the immune system is something that we can now use to our advantage to get rid of food allergies. Or desensitize, I should say. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. That's amazing. So you would have to monitor people, especially if they were anaphylactic. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's, it hasn't made what's called standard of care, uh, especially in Canada. So there's no, um, you know, billing code that an allergy doctor can bill for. So unfortunately, this is kind of done a lot of it in private practice uh, centers only. Um, and you, know, you can imagine right. this requires having my cell phone number and for any emergencies that may occur. Um, you know, we try to do this in the safest possible way. So I do it in a way that where I, you know, basically knock out the allergy part of the immune system with a medication called omalizumab, which is an antibody towards your body's allergy antibodies. Other people do this with something called bare OIT, where they just only use the food itself, but this is much more risky and it requires microdosing in the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Of course, that would, that would make sense. Interesting. Um, one more question, um, Jason, in regards to myths about allergies, can you be allergic to sugar or fats? Okay, very good question, because people always uh, tell me this, or ask me about this. So by definition, your body's immune system can only react in a certain number of physiologic ways. So we mentioned the allergy antibody, IgE, this can technically only react to uh, peptide, so protein-based antigens, or glycopeptide, Proteins, so protein-based yeah. uh, antigens with a lot of sugar moieties. Sugar itself cannot cause an anaphylactic reaction, except if you receive a huge load intravenously, which changes the osmolality of your, uh, of your blood. Um, so outside of those settings, it's really hard to, because you know even if you drink 
you know, a lot of sugary beverages, your osmolality is not going to change all that much because your body can really regulate that quite well, assuming you're not a diabetic. Of course. Of course. Interesting. What about fats? So fats, again, if it's part of a lipoprotein, um, that part mm -hmm. can, but on its own, again, it's being very simplistic, mm -hmm. cholesterol, uh, other fatty things, uh, can, like triglycerides, they cannot induce anaphylaxis. With, again, the exception being right. that if you have it intravenously and it changes the tonicity of your blood or osmolality of your blood. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. Well, there you go. That's, that's fascinating. I, it, there's just so much out there. There's so many, and there's so many misconceptions about what you're allergic to. Absolutely. I mean, from somebody that has, um, my sister was diagnosed with atopic dermatitis after her pregnancy mm -hmm. and she's never been able to get rid of it. And, um, yeah, yeah. yeah so her. Pregnancy is a very interesting one, uh, for women. Um, you know, essentially when you're pregnant, um, the baby, uh, you know, if, if you want to look at a crude analogy, it's kind of like a parasite growing within you. Okay. So it, it feeds it is. off you <laughs> and uh, it's not yes. you either. So, you know, half the genes come from uh, dad um, and the half the proteins expressed, including the immune proteins and everything is actually very different. It's foreign from you. So it's a foreign kind of parasite. Yeah. Uh, so the body's immune system in the, in the mother has to undergo a lot of changes to be able to not reject this baby and leave it alone. So it has to become much more tolerant right. of different things that are seen. So I, I do see this all the time in my, in my patients who, you know, have had pregnancy, a lot of pregnancy induced sort of uh, atopic conditions occur. You mentioned atopic dermatitis. There's actually a specific uh, condition that develops in some women called PUPS. Uh, pruritus or urticaria papillary yep. tendency. So they thought she had that. That's yeah. what they thought she had. Yeah. So a lot of these yeah. immune systems happen, and and you know some patients with asthma, their asthma tends to get worse. You know, there's a most you know there's the mechanical changes that occur with ventilation and the diaphragm being pushed up, but the volume of blood uh, that's circulating increases. So that's called the effective plasma circulating volume increases. So a lot of these changes occur and. You know, even post-delivery, um, you know, the immune system is forever changed uh, or altered. So you know, we, we mentioned epigenetics in our previous episode. Some of these markers have had to change to yeah. accommodate essentially something growing inside of you that's yeah. so different from you. So, you know, the immune system yeah. is very interesting. Um, just to circle back on your uh, the fat comment. So, you know, a common misdiagnosis that I see um, is when I hear the story of a patient reacting to uh, all sorts of fatty foods. And this could be healthy fats too, something like avocado, which is you know, has a ton of healthy fats. Um, and they will have mm -hmm. reducible, usually gastrointestinal limited symptoms like you know, a diarrhea or some kind of you know, uh, abdominal pain. And you know, it's important, especially uh, in, if you're in the high, higher risk category of, you know, for example, obesity or, you know, uh, or around the age of 40 or so, um, is gallstones. So gallstones are often missed uh, at the at the primary care level. So if you're reacting with GI symptoms mm -hmm. all the time to you know fatty foods, this could, it could mean that you have gallstones as well because you can't you don't have enough of that bile yeah. to neutralize these uh, fats. The fats. Oh, that's so interesting about you know, how our immune systems are so connected to absolutely everything. 
Um, for sure. I didn't develop actually my eczema until I was an adult. Didn't have it as a kid, always very dry skin, but didn't have eczema until I was, I was in my twenties. It's a, it's a, that's another myth as well, that, uh, all atopic dermatitis starts in uh, infancy or in early childhood. It can actually Mm -hmm. start at any age. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to, you know, the interaction or that dance between the immune system and the environment. So you may have a genetic predisposition, mm-hmm. uh, but if you, you know, happen to encounter mm-hmm. that right virus or, you know, something that skews you, or, you know, for example, a pregnancy or an infection that skews you and turns uh, this thing on, the part of the immune system inflammation that gets turned on is something called type two inflammation. This dysregulation is now turned on and now you've got the consequence. So, you know, we, um, not to you know digress, but uh, everyone with COVID, uh, some people with COVID, post-COVID are experiencing this type two shift in the immune system, and everyone was surprised. But we've known oh, for yeah. years that a lot of viruses uh, shift the body's immune system in one way or another. So it's just a phenomenon that occurs. Of course, yeah. In my circumstances, it was my poor diet. I didn't eat enough, and then when I started to eat more food. I broke out with eczema that just was very much stress induced and my immune system forever changed because yeah, I was never able to get rid of it. A lot of things that we do when we're stressed is, uh, you know, we don't take uh, as much good self-care. So we may not be moisturizing, we may yeah. not be drinking or keeping up with our fluid intake. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, we call uh, multivariable uh, problems coming on, uh, coming on when we're stressed as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's fascinating information, like crazy in regards to the myths regarding allergies and what people and misconceptions that people think versus what the truth is. (laughs) Thanks, Brie. We'll do this again uh, with more exploration about allergies in the next episode. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it, Jason.